Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In the early 1900s, flying dragon-like creatures seemed to be all the rage. Tonight, we take a look at the Snellygaster, which was seen in the night skies from Maryland to Ohio. Then we hop over to Van Meter, Iowa, to discuss the mysterious Van Meter visitor. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to this first, this inaugural episode of Small Town Secrets. What is Small Town Secrets? Well, it's going to be a show, a podcast, if you will, where we explore the strange mysteries of small towns all across the globe. We're talking cryptid reports, Bigfoots, UFOs, true crime, or just weird and interesting history. This being the first episode... I want to take some time and take everybody through what the show is going to be, the segments, all that stuff. We're going to start with a little intro, which will usually be official podcast business. Right now, there's not a whole lot. This will be in the first episode. And then we're going to go into the meat of the show. It's usually going to be a story about one to three towns, depending on how much information I can dig up. And I'm going to try as hard as I can to kind of have a theme connecting them. The whole theme thing 
kind of came organically with this first episode. I wasn't trying to find two stories about flying cryptids from the early 1900s. It just sort of happened that way. So I thought to myself, let's keep that going. I'm going to try to connect these stories by some sort of theme. It might be, you know, they might all be UFO sightings. They might all be Bigfoot stories. They might all be true crime. Or they might be connected in some way. For example, I'm working on a future episode that will have two different stories that are kind of connected by an insane theory. Something like that. After that, we'll take a small break and we'll come back with local headlines. These will be small news stories that might turn into future episodes, but they'll usually be current events, wacky news, things like that. And then we'll finish out the show with listener stories. We've got a couple tonight that both deal with hauntings in their own small towns. Then we'll have a little outro to put a button on everything, and we'll head on out for the next episode. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about two flying cryptids from the early 1900s. The dreaded Snellygaster, which started out in Middletown, Maryland, and ended up out in Castown, Ohio. And then we're going to switch over to Iowa and talk about the Van Meter Visitor. But before we do that, I have a promo from another podcast. Everyone has a story. So take a listen and check it out, and we'll be back after this. It wasn't, it wasn't even a cool dog, like a Rottweiler. <laughs> no, it was like, no, a schnauzer. schnauzer almost took me off the earth. <laughs> so did you drink a lot? Did you yeah. uh, do drugs? I mean, what? Yeah, I, yes, to both. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I, I was an ass. Really? For the bulk of those years. Okay. Just and like what you mean, arrogant? Y- arrogant. It was just all about Phil Moon, whatever Phil Moon could do to benefit Phil Moon. Okay. Uh, and I didn't care who I walked on, who I stepped on, who I angered. Have you ever passed someone on the sidewalk and wondered what their story is? What makes them tick? What makes them who they are? I'm Nathan Wade, and I'm the host of Everyone Has a Story podcast. Each week, we interview an average person and explore the events that have impacted, shaped, and molded them into the individuals they are today. In this world of vicious social media rants and bitter partisan politics, we need to put the Facebook down, shut the Fox News or CNN off, and take our neighbor a plate of cookies. I'm trying to do my small part here to bring people a little closer together. So grab your favorite beverage, find a comfy chair, and join me in on the conversation. Everyone Has a Story releases a new episode every Monday morning. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also listen and subscribe at everyonehasastorypodcast.com. Remember, everyone is unique. Everyone has a story. What's yours? First on the docket tonight is the Snellygaster. This guy has a special place in my heart for a couple of reasons. One is because one of the sightings was in my hometown of Castown, Ohio. Two, I knew about the Snellygaster before it was cool. The Snellygaster sighting is also the entire reason for this show. It's the it's the catalyst, and I'll go into that later. But let's talk about him first. The Snellygaster is said to be a large dragon-like creature. It's half bird, half reptile, with a tail well over 20 feet in length. In the 1700s German folklore, if you couldn't tell by the name, it's German, paints the creature 
with properties of a demon or a ghoul. But more recent descriptions, and by recent I mean like 1909, give the monster a metal beak lined with razor-sharp teeth, octopus-like tentacles, which depending on what picture you're looking at, what drawing you're looking at, uh, are either coming out of his mouth, or his chest, or just somewhere, there's tentacles, and one giant eye in the middle of its head. Remember that one for later, because it's going to come back in the other story. The sighting started around Frederick County, Maryland in 1909. The Snellegaster's name comes from the German Schellergeist, which means quick spirit. Not surprising since the area around Frederick County was settled by mostly German immigrants. Sightings of the creature started popping up in Maryland newspapers around February and March of 1909. One of the early articles claimed that the winged beast snatched up a man and drained his body mid-air before dropping the body on a hillside. This early story was carried by the Valley Register in Middletown, Maryland, and before they knew it, the story spread like wildfire. In one article, footprints were said to be found in New Jersey. Another article said it had almost carried off a woman near Scrabble, West Virginia. This article also went on to say that it had roosted in a barn and laid a barrel-sized egg. There was so much hype generated by the monster that the Smithsonian offered a reward for its hide a reward that sparked none other than President Theodore Roosevelt to postpone an international trip to personally hunt the beast. I couldn't find anything else about that. Probably didn't happen, and he sure as hell didn't find the thing. Reports went as far as Ohio, when a T.C. Harbaugh, who lived in Castown, wrote a letter to the Valley Register saying that the large winged creature flew over town making odd screeching noises. He said it had a horny head, huge wings, and a 20-foot-long tail. Sightings continued in Maryland as well. It was reported to be seen sleeping near a brick-burning kiln, and when it was awoken, it flew away giving off a horrendous scream. Near Haggardstown, at a place called Lover's Lane, this is also in Maryland, I believe, it was seen flying over the mountains, and it was said to lay another egg. So that's two eggs and the original creature. So that means there's going to be three of these creatures around at some point? Well, I guess probably four. I mean, something's got to be fertilizing these eggs. There has to be a male and a female, unless it's some sort of hermaphrodite-like creature. The final sighting in 1909 was reported by three men. These three men claimed to have fought the Snellygaster by a railroad station for nearly half an hour before chasing it into the woods of Carroll County, Maryland. After that... The creature was not seen again for 23 years. More sightings came from Frederick County, Maryland. Apparently the monster had a lifespan of about 20 years. Because of this, it was surmised that the one seen in the 30s was the offspring of the one seen in 1909. The last reported sighting of the Snellygaster was of its death. It was said to have died in Washington County, Maryland after it was overcome from moonshine fumes and fell out of the sky into a 2,500-gallon vat of alcohol. Revenue agents would later destroy the vat and the body of the monster, and that's how the creature met its end. Of course, it was burnt, so there's no evidence, there's no body, there's no skeleton, there's no pictures, there's nothing. The Castown sighting is very special to me, like I said. Why? Castown is my hometown. And a while back, I was listening to a podcast telling the accounts I've just told you. 
When the host mentioned my small village of maybe 200 people, and the one I was currently living in at the time, it made my eyes snap open and sit up in bed. And that's why I decided to start the show with the Snellygaster Report. It was such like a fun feeling to be like, here's a show that I love, and here they are talking about something that happened here in this town. So I thought, I want to do a show, and that's what the show is all about. That hopefully someone will listen to this show and other episodes of it, and their eyes will snap open in the dark when they hear their own hometown mentioned, and it might be something they know, it might be something they didn't know. Nonetheless, it's a fun feeling, and I wanted to do anything I could to bring that feeling, that sense of, oh boy, you know, wonderment to anyone else. But back to the Snellygaster. It's widely believed that sightings in 1909 and 1932 are fabricated. Story, they were stories by the newspapers, in order to sell more papers. And after looking more into my beloved Castown sighting, the man who wrote the letter to the Valley Register was, of course, as I mentioned before, none other than T.C. Harbor, Castown's only famous resident. He wrote poems and dime store novels, mainly thrillers and mysteries. So he knows how to weave a story. And maybe he thought it would be a good way to drum up some publicity. I mean, he was a dime store novelist. These guys got paid by the penny. They weren't rich. They weren't, you know, very successful. And if you look at the sign, if you ever visit Castown, it will say, world-renowned poet and author T.C. Harbaugh. But I'm not sure how accurate that is, considering he died penniless in a poorhouse in 1924. I'm not sure how world-renowned he was. And who knows, maybe someday they'll replace that sign with world-renowned podcaster. Maybe I'll die penniless. So yeah, I think he had alternate motives. But who knows, maybe he did see this creature in the night sky and still took it as an opportunity. Or, who knows, not. But... There is one other thing that I found very interesting. He wasn't born in Cast Town. He moved here. He moved here. His family moved him here when he was two years old. He was born in Middletown, Maryland. Which is where the sightings began. So, I don't know. Maybe he had family out there. Maybe he had some connections out there. And that's how he got his story into the paper. Or maybe it was just a complete coincidence. An interesting one, but a coincidence nonetheless. I'm kind of inclined to agree that the Snellygaster sightings were just there to sell papers. For two reasons. One I mentioned earlier is that T.C. Harbour was a writer. And I think he just drummed up his, his sighting to get his name out there. And the other one, the thing that really makes me go, oh, this is this is fake, is the last sighting, 1930s, Prohibition. This monster is knocked out by evil alcohol fumes, and then the brave, fearless revenue agents destroy the creature. It just reeks of 1930s pro-Prohibition propaganda. I mean, who knows, maybe the sighting was real, and they just drummed it up still made it as propaganda, or it was never real in the first place. We don't have any real kind of photographs. We don't have any 
evidence. I mean, it was 1909. What are you going to get? But if the thing laid two eggs, there should have been other creatures around. I looked. I couldn't really find new sightings. 1932, it kind of goes away. And it never comes back. But maybe it's moved on. Maybe we're seeing something else. Maybe Mothman's the Snelly Gaster, and Snelly Gaster's the Mothman, or, you know, a Thunderbird is the Snelly Gaster. But it's always been a fun story. I've always enjoyed it. And the story's starting to grow steam. I mean, there was a time when not a lot of people knew about the Snelly Gaster. But, you know, as days go on, he seems to be becoming quite the popular character. I was even able to buy a nice illustration by Egerton Puck at the Mothman Festival last year. And I saw some other uh, Snelly Gaster memorabilia dotted around the festival as well. But that's about all we've got. Like I said, he's not really come back. There's no modern sightings. And he seems to have just been this obscure blip in early 1900s. But he's not the only obscure blip from the early 1900s. There is another and that is the Van Meter Visitor of Van Meter, Iowa, which we're going to talk about right now. In 1903, the small town of Van Meter was terrorized by a strange winged creature. It was said to have been eight feet tall with large bat-like wings, a beak, and one large eye in the middle of its head. There it is again. Just like the Snellygaster, one large eye in the middle of its head. But this one emitted a bright, almost beam-like light from its one eye. And some accounts told of a powerful stench emitting from the monster as well. The town itself really started to take off in 1879, when a 257-foot-deep coal mine was sunk. The next year, the mine was sold to the Chicago Coal Company. Soon after that, the fire burned down the main mine's engine house. It was rebuilt with the latest mining technology at the time. Because of this, the Van Meter Mine would become one of the most prosperous mines in the Midwest. In 1883, the owners of the mine decided to expand and built the Platt Pressed and Fire Brick Company. The mine would chug right along until 1902 when a labor dispute would lead to the owners to shut down the mine rather than negotiate with the workers. However, the brick factory was unaffected by this and would continue on for some time. The first person to see the strange creature was U.G. Griffith. Griffith owned a tool and implement and seed company along with his brother David. In the early morning of September 29th, he was making his rounds, selling tools, a trip he had made many times before. Around one in the morning, he returned home and noticed something on top of the nearby Mather and Gregg building. There was a bright light atop the building, a light that he had never seen there before. As he slowly approached the building, the light darted off, across the street and onto the roof of a second building. Shortly after reaching the second building, it just disappeared. That was it. The first sighting's almost like a UFO thing, you know, it's just, here's a bright light, and it goes there, and it goes there, and then it's gone. But the next night, 
at 1227 a.m. A Dr. Alcott. There doesn't seem to be a lot of information on this guy, which is odd, especially for a doctor. We're not even sure if Dr. Alcott is his actual name. But anyway, Dr. Alcott was awoken by a bright light shining in his face. Almost immediately he was awake, and he grabbed his gun and ran outside. There's going to be a lot of guns in the story. It's 1909, it's Iowa, everyone had a gun. It had rained early that night, making it wet and damp. Once outside, he could see the half-human, half-animal with great bat-light wings. These are quotes, by the way. The doctor also said the light was emanating from a blunt horn atop the creature's head. So he says it's a horn, not the eye. And you'll get that. Some people say it's this horn on its head. Some people say it's this eye. Um, but, hey, it's night. Who knows? Dr. Alcott proceeded to fire at the beast five times. None of the shots did anything to the Van Meter visitor. Did the good doctor just miss all five of those shots in the night? Or did they just not do anything to the creature? We'll see this a lot, too. People will fire at it, and it just doesn't care. It's almost like that Bigfoot thing where you fire at a Bigfoot, and it just goes right through it, or it doesn't seem to be affected. It's the same thing here. He had one shot left, but he decided not to use it. Instead, he ran back into his house, locked all the doors, and shuttered all the windows, and just waited for the night to be over. By the next morning, stories of a strange flying creature, as well as Alcott and Griffin's encounters, were all over town. Soon there would be more tales to add to the small town's zeitgeist. That Thursday morning was October 1st, and once again, around 1 in the morning, the Van Meter visitor would show up. Clarence Peter Dunn, Peter to his friends, was a clerk of the Van Meter Bank. Like so many others, he had heard of the stories of the strange lights and the beasts of the night, and he had decided that these sightings were nothing more than robbers trying to break into nearby homes and businesses. So, on October 1st, he stood guard at the bank with shotgun in hand. As the clock struck one that night, Dunn heard a strange garble of noises, as if someone were being strangled. As he went to investigate the noises, Dunn was overtaken by a bright light. He fired point-blank, just like Dr. Alcott the night before. The rain of buckshot did not deter the creature. He did hit something, destroying a window of the bank and part of the bank's sash, and after he shot the thing, it ran off. When daylight came, a more thorough search was conducted. No one found the creature, but some odd three-toed tracks were found, and apparently a plaster cast was made. But, of course, the plaster cast is lost to history. Can't find it. No one knows where it is. The next encounter came later in the evening of October 1st. So that one was late at night, you know, after midnight. And this one is kind of earlier October 1st night going into October 2nd. O.V. White co-owned a furniture store called Fisher & White Hardware & Furniture. Mr. White lived above the store on the second floor. That evening, he was awoken by the sound of rasping outside a second-story bedroom window. Fueled by the stories of the past few days, he armed himself. White saw the visitor perched on the crossbeam of a telephone pole. White was a good marksman, but even he seemed to miss the beast. After shooting at the visitor, the creature gave off a strong odor, a smell so terrible it seemed to stupefy White. 
All of the commotion woke White's next door neighbor, Sidney Gregg. Opening his door, Gregg looked down Main Street to see the creature descending the telephone pole. He saw what so many others have seen, an eight-foot-tall winged bat-like creature, with a light shining from the middle of its head. Gregg got as close as fifteen feet or so from the creature. It was at that moment that the mail train rolled into town. The screeching of the train whistle seemed to scare the creature, and it fled off on all fours toward the old coal mine. So the description of this thing, if you really want to think about it, is essentially a pterodactyl with one eye or a horn, or maybe both, that emit a bright light. By now, the mysterious visitor was all the town could talk about. Friday morning turned into day, and then into evening. There were still a few men manning the mine, as well as those working at the brick and tile factory. And these men had a new thing to report. Strange noises were coming out of the depths of the mine. They were described as though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for battle. The horrendous noises would continue into the early hours of Sunday, October 3rd. The operations manager of the brick factory, J.L. Platt Jr., would approach the whaling mine that evening to investigate. As he neared the mine entrance, the van meter visitor itself erupted from the entrance, and then behind it, there was a second, smaller creature. Platt wasn't the only one to witness that there were now two creatures emerging from the mine, and not one. Many workers from the factory also saw them. So now we have a whole town of witnesses, which is, I think, more more to the credibility of the story than of the Snellygaster. The news of the two creatures at the mine spread through town. In the light of this terrifying news, everyone agreed that something had to be done. Any able-bodied man in town would grab his favorite firearm, and a huge posse of townsmen marched up to the mine. When the posse arrived, the creatures were gone, and so the long wait began. Then, in the early morning light of the next day, the two beasts were seen making their way back towards the mine. The small army of men opened fire. Explosions, gunfire, and blasts of light could be heard and seen all the way through town. However, all that gunfire, it did no good. Just like the nights before, the bullets had no real effect, and the two creatures just crawled back into the mine. So the next course of action was, if we can't kill the monster, then maybe we can just, you know, get rid of it. The town decided to seal off the mine for good, and that's exactly what they did. They went in there, they found the main mine shaft, sealed it off, poured it with concrete, buried it, and the van meter visitor hasn't been seen since. So there you go. It's another fun story. It's very similar to the Snellygaster. It takes place about the same time. But I like this one in the sense that it seems to be... I don't know. There seems to be more meat to it. You have witnesses. You have names for these witnesses. A lot of them were upstanding members of the town. They, you know, It wasn't a local loon who lived on the outskirts of town that no one believed. These were businessmen. These were... You know, they were the backbone of this place. You've got all of these people that supposedly went to this mine and tried to kill this creature. 
you've got, hopefully, maybe, somewhere, uh, plaster tracks that were taken that, I don't know, I don't know how long plaster lasts, but it was still around in 1903, then maybe they are out there somewhere. The only weird thing about this one is it seemed to, like, all the news stories were written by one guy. So did this guy just make up this entire story, fabricate everything, use people's real name just to sell papers? And if he did use people's actual names, I mean, wouldn't they find out about it? It seems kind of risky to be like, hey, I'm going to make all this stuff up, but to make it more credible, I'm going to use actual people. I feel like as soon as White or Platt or any of these guys saw that in the paper... They might have some choice words for the writer of these stories. I also find it very fascinating that this and the Snellygaster are so similar. They're very similar. They're almost the same creature. I mean, the Van Meter Visitor is smaller. Doesn't have tentacles. Maybe it did have tentacles. Could it be that maybe the Van Meter Visitor was, was the Snellygaster? just six years younger and you know I know flew off because of being shot at and emerges later farther away in Maryland full grown tentacles and razor sharp beak and it's one large eye could that be the case are they the same creature who knows because we haven't seen either one of these since unless we've just decided that the van meter visitor is some offshoot of something that we know now. Once again, the whole maybe it's a Mothman thing, maybe it's a fire a firebird. It's a terrific story. And most of the stuff I got from a book called, oddly enough, The Van Meter Visitor by Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Lee Nelson. They are the Backroads lore guys. I've linked to their website in the show notes. And I'm pretty sure you can probably get it off Amazon too, but it's a great book. I really only kind of use Chapter 6 for this segment, but there's a bunch of stuff in there. They really go into the history of the town. They go into possible explanations, other things that might be, other, you know, other reported sightings. They've got the newspaper articles in there. There's some really interesting appendices. And it's also just, like, a good book. You know, it's got a great cover and nice heavy paper that you can highlight and it doesn't smudge. And the cover, like, the cover paper is nice and strong. It's just, like, a well-made book. It's a good book. But they do a lot of stuff like this. So if you like this show, they do a lot of books of just, you know, here's, I think, Wisconsin's one that they've done and just a bunch of strange stuff in Wisconsin. They've done a couple of states. So check that out. It's a, it's a good one. With that, that's the end of our first segment. Uh, cryptids from the early 1900s. We're going to take a short break, going to play a little music, and then we're going to come back with some new stories, some current stuff, and of course, some uh, listener small town secrets.
we're back with the news. So the first story I'm going to talk about is about Roswell. Don't know if I'm ever going to do a Roswell episode. I feel it's probably super played out. But this uh, came out on February 6th. And it's about the crash site. The Roswell crash site has been sold. It's under new management. So this story comes from the Roswell Deli Record. And it states, Site of alleged 1947 UFO crash changes hands. The 1947 UFO crash site is under new management. Boggle Limited Company of Dexter has sold the Lincoln County ranching property about 75 miles northwest of Roswell to Dinwiddle Cattle Company, LLC. Something crashed in 1947 at what was then the J.B. Foster Ranch, with the U.S. Army announcing it had recovered a flying disc but later saying the debris was merely the remnants of a high-altitude weather balloon. Speculation about extraterrestrials and government cover-ups has existed ever since, inspiring books, movies, and TV shows as well as serious scholarship and research. A deed filed with the Lincoln County Clerk's Office shows that the crash site property was transferred to the Dinwiddle Cattle Company November 26th. The Lincoln County Assessor's Office indicates the property is a bit larger than 78 acres. Tommy Denmiddle said the parcel happens to be part of a much larger land purchase for the cattle company's ranching operations. Without a strong personal interest in the UFO connection at this time, Denmiddle said he can't say for sure whether the crash site property will be made available to the public. I just don't know a whole lot about it, Denmiddle said. The guy who was running the ranch over there for me knows quite a bit about it, and after we kind of get our feet on the ground running it, we will do some more talking about it and figuring out what we want to do. The Boogle family has hosted tours of the site during the most recent UFO festival in July, marking the first time that the group provided visitor access during its 66 years of ownership. Prior to that, only researchers or documentary makers were given permission to be on the property. The public's fascination with the Roswell incident and other UFO and extraterrestrial matters created a new tourism focus on the area, with numerous UFO-related businesses and events created as a result. The Roswell's International UFO Museum and Research Center now attracts more than 200,000 visitors worldwide each year, and the week-long UFO festival brings in more than 30,000 tourists each summer. Senior writer Lisa Dunlap. So, it would be kind. I, I think that they should just make it a thing, you know, just open it up. It's been 66 years, you know. Charge people five bucks a head. Make some money on the side. Come and look at this dirt that was really cool back in 1947. But I guess we'll just have to see. We've got another UFO story. This one from the Mountain Reporter out in California. Man claims extraterrestrials are to blame in Highway 18 rollover accident. On Wednesday, February 6th, a solo vehicle accident occurred on Highway 18 above Red Rock Wall. A white Ford E350 van, for unknown reasons, overturned on Highway 18, landing on its side after crossing on the oncoming traffic lane. The van was traveling upbound towards Rimfrost just after 1.34 p.m. According to CHP transcripts of the original 911 call, the driver admittedly stated that his van was flipped over by aliens. Additionally noted in the CHP transcripts, the male driver became confrontational with bystanders and officers, 
then stated that he did not want law enforcement on the scene and demanded a tow truck. The van lying on its side was not a traffic hazard as it was out of the roadway and not blocking traffic lanes. Three California Highway Patrol units were on the scene. The man was not transported for his injuries and his claims of alien intervention during the traffic accident are under investigation by the California Highway Patrol. Georgie A. Sukalos was not available for comment. That story was written by Raymond Ray. And we've got one more here about some strange uh, vibrations and shaking from Canton, Michigan. This comes from the Fox 2, the local affiliate. What's causing homes in Canton to shake so much you can watch water ripple, hear windows rattle, and feel it in your body? The answer is still out there. Multiple homeowners in Canton say they've experienced this just a few times over the past few months. They'll feel a sudden vibration in their bodies and even hear the windows in their home shake. One owner got a video of a glass of water rippling as the vibrations shudder. It's similar to that scene in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex is stomping and the water ripples. You know the one that made you shake when you were 12 years old. The shaking is happening primarily on Lots Road, so the Z, north and south of Michigan Avenue, but also beyond. The most recent shaking came Monday night. It's disturbing. We've had pictures actually fall off the walls, Mackley Howe said. Howe has lived in Canton for over 20 years and said he's felt and heard them roughly five times over the past year. Sometimes they last an hour. Other times they shake all night, but it always seems to be at night. I don't think I've ever experienced it during the daytime. House says he's called the police twice, but says they also became confused. The area isn't far from both an airport and a railroad, but how the and other neighbors say it only started within the last year. I'm familiar with all those sounds, the airport, the train, the sound I-275 makes. This is something very different, Hal said. Joette Morris said the vibrations are sometimes so intense that it's painful to their ears. You figure it's just something natural, but it was just strange, she said. One neighbor has reported the crumbling of foundation while others are simply a bit creeped out. Theories of what it could be abound, and now city officials have started to take notice. They told Fox 2 they don't believe the mysterious vibrations are connected to the utilities or the landfill. Instead, the city believes it's coming from I-275. City officials say they're working with Canton Police and investigating. They asked neighbors who have experienced it to file a report with Canton Public Safety. The Department of Public Works is asking neighbors to document the location, time, and date they notice the vibrations and try to draw a map of where it happens so they can get to the bottom of this. It's got to be the industry because it's mechanical. Other than that, I'm clueless, Hal said. City officials are asking anyone to be able to take video to send them to the city's public works manager by emailing them at bobbillar at canton-mi.org. That's a pretty new story. I actually just found it right before I started recording. It kind of reminds me of the sky sounds phenomenon that happened like 2012, 2013, if you follow this stuff. It was just, you know, large booming in the sky and all these just weird sounds. But this is a vibration, the Taoist hum. This is something shaking. 
Um, it'll be fun to maybe keep an eye on this and see if anything comes from it. If, is it. if they find like a nice logical explanation for it, or if they find like a much more fun, we don't know kind of a thing. But that has been the local headlines for this show. I think it's time to get into some listener experiences. Your own small town secrets. I know I'm calling these first ones listener stories, and I yeah, this is the first episode, so there aren't really listeners, but these are I had I did get some people to send me some stuff in. Um two of them actually. Both of them kind of about hauntings. The first one is from Kaylee Mary Hurd from Abel, Georgia. This is a Facebook post that she gave me permission to use, so if it sounds a little Facebook posty, that's because it is. And she wrote it down kind of in nice bullet points. So I'm just gonna go down and just read it. A Haunting Story, Kaylee Marie Hurd, Abel, Georgia. I thought I would share a story from my childhood of a haunted house I lived in, since it seems you guys like ghost stories. It'll be a bit long as there's a lot that happened, but this house was seriously whacked, man. Background. Since around the 1950s, my family owned a plot of swampy land in South Georgia. As of the 1960s, we have one known death on the land. My great-grandfather. Death count one. In the 1980s, my grandparents built a house with their own hands. I'll attach the realtor listing, as no one will live in it now. And moved in. By 1995, my grandfather died of a heart attack in the house. Death count, two. In 2006, my nana died of brain cancer that she suffered with mostly in the house, but died in the hospital at the last minute. Death count, three. In 2012, my great-grandma died off the land. She has spent most of her life there. Death count, four. By 2009, due to a divorce, my mother, me, and four of my siblings had to move into this now vacant house. It was trash from the previous tenant who used drugs all over the house, let dogs defecate on the carpets, and even attempted suicide in the house. There was even a bullet hole in the wall from where he had missed his head with the bullet. It wasn't long after that that the activity started. The Haunting Here's a list of things we experienced in the house. 1. We would go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and cabinets would be open in the kitchen. Not all of them, just a select few. No one ever owned up to it. 2. People would come over to visit and ask when did we get a black cat because they saw it in the kitchen or walk up the stairs. We didn't have a black cat. 3. Our pets would randomly drop dead. We had a neighbor who had a reputation for drugging local pets with antifreeze, so this could be the source. Sad nonetheless, we lost perhaps four dogs and ten cats to this property. 4. A friend of my brother's was over and began crying because he saw a pair of legs walk up the stairs. It didn't have an upper body. He later saw it again in the backyard, walking into the woods. The water in the house was extremely sulfuric. Not specifically ghost-related, but I know sulfur is related to demons. I'm not sure if demons just smell like sulfur or if it attracts them. 6. My sister and I shared a bedroom upstairs and would hear knocking from the little door inside our closet that led to the attic. We would ask it questions, and it would respond intelligently. And here's an example. 
us. Knock twice if you're dead. Us. Knock once if you're a woman and twice if you're a man. Us. Knock once if you plan to do harm and twice if you're friendly. 7. If you're a woman, at least for me, a shower felt like torture because you could feel someone watching you that you couldn't see. It felt predatory and sexually charged. That's what made it terrifying to my 13-year-old self. 8. My brother and I both saw a large brown figure as tall as the ceiling walking around the kitchen one night. I still don't know what it was. 9. A man in a fedora and long trench coat watched me sleep every night next to my bedroom door, so I couldn't walk out to tell someone. To be fair, this had been going on before I moved into the house since I was around 7. I think these are referred to as shadow people. 10. A friend that lived with us for a while saw a black figure sleeping on my mother's chest while she slept, sucking on her face. 11. The same friend, in 10, saw my nana at the foot of the stairs. 12. I saw my grandmother, who had died in the house, in the laundry room. 13. I saw my great-grandmother on the back porch. 14. I had my hair pulled while I was singing in my bedroom. Maybe they didn't like the song choice. 15. My sister was lying in bed one night and felt a sharp pain on her face and came downstairs, and there was a hand mark on her face. She was slapped by something she didn't see. 16. I saw a short, stubby gray creature in the hallway one morning before school with yellow, large eyes and stubs for hands and feet. It's never left my mind. But I'm not an artist, so it's hard for me to show it. Its skin was the same pattern as TV static. It was insane. That's all I can recall for now. If I remember another event, I'll comment on it. The activity escalated after there was another suicide attempt in the house. Death count five? We moved out in 2013. The house sold to a couple with a child and they lived there for less than a year. I heard they moved partially due to the activity, but I can't be certain. Even after remodeling, the house can't sell, or even rent. I did some research and managed to find it's on Creek Indian land before the Georgians stole it way back when. I think about this house a lot, and so does the rest of the family. People who never believed in ghosts or demons spent time in this house and walked out believers. It truly is a one-of-the-kind place. And I'm going to post in the show notes uh, the realtor listing so you can take a look. If you're looking for a really haunted house in Georgia, this might be the one you're looking for. And our last story comes from Cody Zadinsky, Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania. Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania, on Buffalo Road, where there is now a price right. At the time, the store was empty, and I was sitting on the side board and decided to use my recorder to make fun of EVPs and ghost hunters. I did not listen to the recording until a few days later at the Blasco Library and was shocked to find out I had captured spirit voices. First, a bird-like voice said, Take the people. Then some seconds of silence followed. Then I rustled my phone, and you could hear my phone rustle and a gust of wind swoop in. At that moment, when I was recording, I actually did think to myself, Great, Cody. That's when I capture something and I ruin it by rustling my phone. But nope. 
At that time, even though it was kind of cheesy to me, another human voice goes, die. Immediately after that, people come back and say, ooh, does he? And I have also caught two more in that area. One down a hidden creek cement tunnel, a voice I recorded said, you're weak. Then the final one I've captured was at a garage in the same general area. There was a little pipe that ran beneath the bridge. I heard movement in the tiny pipe. There were cobwebs covering the whole entrance. I decided to stick my phone in there and captured a voice that sounded more on the demonic side saying, bitch. Yes, the story is real and true. It's hard to even talk about because I thought it was just bullshit. It's not that I believe, but it's that I'm now forced to believe because I know the reality of the fact. I did record these things. It's something I can't deny, and I know this is highly uncommon. I uh, did message him back on Facebook and asked him if he still had the recordings, but he doesn't have that phone anymore and it wasn't backed up or anything. It's still a great story, a lot of EVPs, and it's his experience. I would like to thank Cody, and I would like to thank uh, Kaylee for letting me use those stories for this first episode. Once again, thanks, guys. And that's the end of our first episode. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, especially if it's iTunes, because that's the big one. That's the one that helps gets us noticed. That's the one that really helps get the show out there. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at STSCast on both of those. If you head on over to STSCast.com, click on episodes, you will find uh, full show notes, links to all the sources, uh, links to books that I might have used. As I mentioned, the Van Meter Visitor, the Amazon link will be on there. You'll find some uh, pictures to go along with our stories of the Van Meter Visitor and the Snelly Gaster. You'll also find a merch link. We've got some t-shirts, we've got some phone cases and stickers, if that tickles your fancy. Also, if you scroll down to the bottom of the main page, there is an email submission form for you to submit your own small town secret. So if you have an experience, if you have a small town legend, if you have some funky history, go ahead and uh, send it my way. And if it's a good one, it'll end up on a future episode of the show. That's all for this week. I think we're going to do every other week, see how it goes. It might pop it up to every week, but I like every other week. It gives me plenty of time to research and get the show in a you know, in a quality that I want it to be in. So until next time, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.